So let's take a look at the book of James once again. We started this journey several weeks ago before I left. Today we're going to be in James chapter 2. And this passage, you know, along with a lot of the other ones, gives me a little bit of hope for the church of today. Because as we talked about, James, who was the brother of Jesus, was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And the letter that he wrote that we call the book of James in our New Testament is basically a letter that he wrote to be circulated among the Jewish Christians. Churches that basically had started up in synagogues all over the known world of that time where Jewish people had become followers of Jesus and James is writing to them to hopefully correct and to fix some of the issues that they had. And if you remember, the biggest issue, they had all kinds of different issues, but the kind of the core issue of all of this was that they were not maturing in Christ. They, they needed to grow up in their faith and not just keep acting like spiritual children. And so the issues that they dealt with uh, give me hope because if they dealt with these kind of things in the first century after Jesus left, then it makes me feel better about the fact that we're still dealing with some of these things today. Amen? There are problems in the church today, but there were problems in the church back then, and God still has the ability to do some great and mighty things through a church, even one that has problems. And I hope that you believe that. The problem that he's dealing with in this particular chapter is is one that's pretty easy to talk about, but not nearly as easy to fix. So let me read the first couple verses, and then we'll jump right in. Again, this is James chapter 2, verses 1 through around, I believe, 12, 11 or 12. My dear brothers and sisters, he says, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example... Suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor, well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? So this is the issue James is talking about today. We're going to stop right there. We'll pick up again in just a few minutes. But let's talk about this main issue. The main issue that he's dealing with is the issue of favoritism. And I love it when the Bible makes it easy for us. When it tells us exactly what the problem is. Because sometimes some passages in scripture are not as easy to interpret. They're not as easy to understand. And we find after we read them that we're still wondering what is it that we're supposed to do. In this case, James makes it absolutely clear and certain. That the problem in the church is favoritism. And that that favoritism is a major issue because it is incompatible with their faith in Christ. Listen to what he says. How can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? It's easy. Christianity is easy. Just do what the man says, right? My daughter goes to pitching lessons. She plays softball and she goes to pitching lessons. And every once in a while, her her pitching coach will tell her to do something very specific. You know, girls, when they pitch, do a lot of complicated things. They got to get their footwork right. They do that whole round robin thing. And then they let the ball go somewhere around here. I can't do it. I break windows when I throw that way. But anyway, there are times when he will look at her and say, you're doing pretty good, but if you would do this one thing... It would be better. And sometimes, every once in a great while, she will actually listen. I know, right? A teenager who listens. And she will do that one thing, and the ball will fly straight and true, and hit the glove, and pop the glove, and make me impressed as a father, since I'm usually the one catching. And her coach will look at her and say, see, softball's easy, isn't it? Well, yeah, it's easy when you know what to do, and you do it. 
Unfortunately, living without favoritism is not that easy to live out. I mean, Christianity would be easy if we could just hear that we need to do it and then do it effectively. But living without favoritism is not as easy as we might think. Because if they were struggling with it then and we're still struggling with it today, it's probably something we're going to have to work at. So what is favoritism exactly? What are we talking about? This is just a couple of the thoughts I have. I believe that favoritism is elevating someone's position based on what you see of them. So you look at them, you see them, you make a judgment in your mind, and you elevate their position because of what you see. Favoritism is also deflating someone's position based on what you see. You look at them, you make a judgment, maybe you think less of them than you did before, and so you deflate their position. In other words, it's judging people based on how they look and treating them differently as a result. Jesus addresses this behavior, or I'm sorry, James addresses the behavior by giving them an example. He says, okay, let's say that you're meeting together. And we don't know if the Jewish Christians met still in synagogues. There's some evidence that they may have kind of done that, that they may have taken over some of the synagogues and met there. Others think that they met in homes, just like a lot of the Gentile Christians. But let's say, he says, that the two people walk into your fellowship. The one guy, to put it in modern terms, drives up in a Mercedes, right? He drives up in a Mercedes. He climbs out of the Mercedes, and he's got the nicest pair of shoes you've ever seen in your life. He's wearing a, a $2,000 suit. I was going to say $400 suit because that would be expensive for me. But then I realized, wow, some people spend a lot more than that on suits. But he's wearing a $2,000 suit. He's got a Rolex on and he comes strolling toward the front door. And, and when you see him coming, everybody perks up because, wow, that's a nice car. I mean, there's guys in this church that would run outside just to look at that car. Can I get an amen, right? A Mercedes-Benz or or maybe it's something else. You know, insert your favorite car here. We would probably run outside and want to see that puppy and ask him all kinds of questions about it. And what's under the hood? And can I take it for a drive? And would you mind giving it to me, right? Just simple questions, nothing big. And then as he comes in the door, the greeters are going to see that guy coming, man. They're going to go after him. And you know what? They're going to get his email address, his phone number, and his address. Because this is a guy who might have the capability of helping the church out in big ways. You know, we've got a mortgage we've got to pay. We'd love to pay that sucker off. I know our finance person over there is grinning at me. She's like, oh, yeah, let's get him. So anyway, as he comes through the door, the greeters are greeting him. They're shaking his hands, you know, and they're giving him the best seat in the house, which is, of course, in the back <clears throat> in the church. That was a joke. Nobody laughed. Anyway, they give him the best seat in the house or let him pick whatever seat he wants. And, you know, you just see him coming and everybody's happy he's there. And then he says another guy walks in. And this time he drives up in a Chevette. And it's not just any Chevette. It's one of those Chevettes with enough rust that the fenders are actually flapping as you go down the road. Anybody ever have a car that the fenders flapped as you went down the road? I had one of those. They were not attached to much of anything. And as the wind would hit them, they would do this. They looked like it was trying to fly, poor thing. You know, you know the car I'm talking about with the window cranks, the old window cranks that would come off in your hand halfway up or halfway down, you never knew which. And he gets out of that car and he's wearing some old beat up sandals and maybe some sweatpants. Maybe his shirt hasn't been washed in a while. His hair's kind of matted and unruly. And he comes walking toward the door and people greet him because that's what we do. We're polite. And we do our best to make him feel welcome, but maybe we kind of delay the whole thing about getting his address phone number because he probably can't spare really much to support the church anyway. So, you know, maybe he'll just come and sit and and enjoy and then kind of go. Now, that's a terrible example, isn't it? Because none of us would love to, none of us want to believe that we would do that. 
But you know what? I've been in the church for a long time. In fact, I've been in the church my entire life. And one of my favorite things to do is to observe people. And I have seen it happen over and over and over again. And it's subconscious. We don't even know we're doing it. We are drawn to those that we believe can benefit us somehow. And we are repelled by those that we don't understand or that make us feel uncomfortable. And we subconsciously make decisions about the directions we're going to move and the words we're going to say and the attitudes we're going to have based on what we visually see and perceive with our senses. And the Bible calls that favoritism. And James says that it is incompatible with the faith that we have in Christ Jesus. Their judgments, he says, even though the behavior of of ignoring this poor man and, and lifting up and exalting the rich man are wrong, he says it's not just the actions that are the problem. You need to go deeper because the actions, you don't even perceive you're doing them. He says they are a sign that your motives are not right. He said you're being pushed and driven by motives that are not pure when you go and embrace the guy that you think can help you and ignore the guy that you think can. And that's really what it boils down to. We judge others a lot of times based on whether they can help us or not. Or whether they're going to add to our lives or subtract. For instance, you know, we might judge people based on how comfortable they make you feel. And honestly, when somebody walks in the door and they're dressed like we are and they look like we are and they act like we are and they're about the same socioeconomic, we feel comfortable because, you know, they're like us. Don't we all feel more comfortable when we're around people who are like us? You know, and some of us are just oddballs and there's nobody like us, right? But we feel comfortable. And so we tend to naturally gravitate in the direction of people who are similar to us. Or maybe we, we tend to, to judge them based on what they can do for us, like the rich man, you know? And, and I, I joke about the money thing. You know me. I hate talking about money. I would love it if we could just, you know, pretend that the mortgage didn't exist. Mary, unfortunately, will not let me forget about that. And so we constantly have to have those conversations because it's a part of ministry. It's part of what we have. But sometimes we have a tendency to, to, to gravitate toward people of means because we feel like somehow their, their wealth is going to rub off on us. That's why American society and American culture are absolutely in love with the rich and famous. Do you know how many TV shows there are out there where people just follow the lives of rich people in their day-to-day, the keeping up with the Kardashians? Have you seen this nonsense? It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. But people are obsessed with it, enthralled by it, because we are drawn naturally to people who have wealth and means because somehow we think that they're going to be able to do something for us. Or maybe we judge them based on how their attendance maybe at our meetings will will influence our standing in society. I was told when I moved here that back before the recession hit and everybody started moving out of town, that there were a couple people that attended here who were like newscasters or something, who were, you know, TV personalities, maybe radio personalities. I don't remember which, but I remember whoever was sharing it with me was very excited. Yeah, we had so-and-so going here, and man, they really brought in a crowd. Okay, well... Maybe, just maybe, we gravitate toward them because we think that they're going to affect our image somehow. Or or maybe it's just our own personal gain. Who knows why we do it? But listen, to judge people and to base their value on what they can do for us is really to dehumanize them. To deny their value as a person and make them only as valuable as they might be for us for our purposes is to dehumanize them. Jesus never did that. 
Jesus always assigned value to people, not based on what they could do for him, but based on the fact that they were creatures created in the image of God. That's what he did. Now listen to this. Jesus gave value to everyone that he met. Think about the woman at the well at Sychar. He, he walks into this town, he goes to the well, and the Samaritan woman comes out, and she's got absolutely nothing to offer his ministry or his political agenda, of which, by the way, he didn't have one. But he had, she had nothing to offer him. And yet he sits down and he has a conversation. And it's so weird and so odd that when the disciples come back, they're like, what is he doing? What is he doing? They were like his political advisors. You know, they're like, why is he talking to a Samaritan woman? Doesn't make any sense. She had nothing to offer him. But he assigned her life value because she was human and because she was a creature created in the image of God. Think about Matthew. Jesus' disciple, Matthew, and Zacchaeus. Remember the wee little man? You remember the song from Sunday school? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Matthew and Zacchaeus were tax collectors. In other words, they worked for the IRS. And not the IRS like we have, the IRS that's corrupt and will take all your stuff. They worked literally for the Romans, taking from their own people and giving money to the Romans. And Jesus assigned them value. He, he sat with them. He called them to be his disciples. He spent time with them. Think about this. He spent time with Peter, James, and John. And we think, oh, well, they're the fine upstanding, you know, disciples of Jesus. No, they were fishermen. Fishermen were on the bottom rung of the ladder when it came to the socioeconomic status. And you want to know what else fishermen had going against them? They smelled funny. You see, we think of a fisherman as like, you know, me getting up in the morning, putting on my fishing hat with all the lures in it and my nice little vest I bought at Field and Stream, going out in a boat with my lunch packed and and my beverages and all this stuff, and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to enjoy God's creation for a couple hours, throwing my hook in the water and hoping I don't catch anything so I don't have to clean it, right? That's what we think about when we think of fishing. You know what they did when they fished? They threw out nets into the water, and then in order to to wrestle those nets back into the boat, they practically had to get in the water with them and wrestle and push those things up. They smelled like fish. And fish don't smell good. Can I get an amen? They didn't just smell like fish, but they caught all that fish. You know what they had to do then? They had to clean all that fish and get it ready for market and take it and sell it. They smelled like the inside of the fish. The inside of the fish is way worse than the outside of the fish, my friends. These were men who worked in the trenches, Nobody wanted anything to do with them. They were uneducated Galileans. That's what the Bible calls them. And Jesus took them into his group and he gave them value, not because of who they were or what they could do for him, but because they were creatures created in the image of God. No one Jesus ever met did he deny that to, even Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus to the Jews and to the Romans. But even on the night that Jesus would be betrayed by Judas, Jesus sat around the table with Judas and the other disciples. And knowing that Judas was going to do what he was going to do, Jesus gave him enough value that he allowed him to eat that last meal with them. And he got down in front of Judas and he washed Judas' feet. Friends, he gave Judas value, even though he was going to betray him. You see, everyone had value in the eyes of Jesus, and not because they were useful, simply because they were human. And you know what? Everyone should have value to us, not because of what they can do for us, but because they are creatures made in the image 
of God. And yet the trend today is for us to judge people by what we see and then dehumanize them and either push them out of our lives if we don't like them or don't agree with them or don't think they can help us, or we run to them if we think that they can. And and I'm just going to give you a quick example and from both sides of the political aisle. Okay, we have we have people that are very, very angry um, out there right now that when the president got COVID, that there were actually people, and this is horrible, actually people saying, Well, good, I'm glad he got it. I hope he suffers from it, and I hope he gets a taste of his own medicine. Have you seen that? I've seen a lot of that going around. And then you got people who are mad about that. On the other side of the coin, you've got people this week that found out Gretchen, uh, Governor Whitmer was almost abducted, or at least there was a plot. And, and they're saying, oh man, I wish, I wish those guys would have succeeded, or I can certainly understand why they'd want to do that and, and take her and, and abduct her and do whatever. And let me just say to you that both of those situations are completely and absolutely deplorable. Because these are human beings we're talking about. Whether you like them or not, whether you agree with them or not, whether they are like you or not, they are human beings. Donald Trump is a human being just like you and I are. He has a family and he does not deserve to be sick at any time. Governor Whitmer is not just a governor. She is a mother and a wife. And yet I have heard Christian people say it would have been better if they'd have succeeded. This is not compatible with the faith that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, we need to be cautious how we judge people. James says it's got to stop. It's got to stop. If Jesus taught us anything by his example here on earth is that everyone is deserving of our respect. Regardless of whether they're like us, regardless of whether they're different, regardless of whether they're rich or poor, regardless of of what their political beliefs are, which side of the aisle they're on. Back then the debate was Samaritan versus Jew. And and Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan to demonstrate, friends, it doesn't matter who you are, it is always the right thing to have compassion on your brother or sister. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox now. Let's read on a little bit further because he has some more to say about this. How are we doing on time? We're almost there. Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters, he says. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. (laughs) This is interesting. He says, isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Apparently they had problems with the rich people dragging people into court. I don't know. Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. Listen, it almost sounds in this passage like James is showing favoritism to the poor because he's kind of talking down about the rich. Now, their society was not like ours today. There was barely any middle class. There were the rich and there were the poor. And often it was the case that the rich were rich because they had taken advantage of the poor. And and whether you like it or not, that still happens today. I hope you understand that. Not everyone who is rich has done that. Don't get me wrong. And not everyone who is poor deserves what they get. But the fact of the matter is, in Jesus' time, there was obviously this huge gulf between the two and there was an issue in the church 
with the wealthy looking down on the poor. And when we look at the poor, James almost seems infatuated with them. And he seems to be sticking up for them almost ahead of everything else. And I think the reason for that is because that's what Jesus did. Let's take a look at what Jesus said about the poor in a couple different places. Matthew chapter 5. I don't have these on the screen. You can just look them up when you get home if you want. Matthew chapter 5 verse 3 is part of the Beatitudes says this. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Jesus promised that the kingdom would be given to those who are poor and who recognize their need for the Savior. Look at what he says in Luke 21. Jesus was in the temple. He's sitting there watching people go through and give their offerings. See, evidence in the Bible, they did do offerings in the, in the New Testament. Jesus is there and he said, he's watching the rich people drop their gifts into the collection box. And verse 2, then a poor widow came by and dropped in two small coins. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, this poor widow has given more than all the rest of them, for they have given a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she has. One more example. Mark chapter 10, verse 23 through 26. Some of you know this is the story of the rich young ruler. This rich guy comes to Jesus and says, how do I be saved? Jesus says, do what the law says. He says, I've done that since I was a child. Jesus says, go sell everything you have. And give it to the poor. How many of you would like that to be added on to just come pray a prayer, right? And the Bible says that he went away sad because he had much. And Jesus says some interesting things. He says, dear children, it is very... No, he says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And then in verse 24, this amazed the disciples. But Jesus said again, dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. Why? Why they asked that? Because they just assumed that the, the, the line getting into heaven, that the rich people would go first. You see, that's how they lived. And friends, that's got to be something that we reject. Now, let's just be frank here. Jesus stands up in an inordinate fashion for those who are poor. Here's why. Because I believe he understood that sometimes when people have wealth, their tendency is to put their faith and their trust in what they have and not in the Savior who blessed them with it. You see, the Bible teaches that, that really there's only one thing that we need in life, and that is to accept and to receive the mercy and the grace God gave. That's why the widow was willing to give the last two cents she had, because she probably figured, I didn't have two cents yesterday. I'm probably not going to have two cents tomorrow. I might as well give it all to God and hope that he supplies for my needs, because really without that, I'm done. And you know what? That's an awfully healthy attitude for people to have. Now again, I'm, I'm not trying to start a cult and convince you all to sell your homes and give your money to the church. Let's not go there. What I'm saying is this. Jesus favors the poor because he knows that we're in, when we're in the condition of need, we have a tendency to depend on the one who can meet that need. It's difficult for those who have means to enter the kingdom. And so James goes at it and, and he basically says, listen, you need to value the poor because they are the ones who have learned how to really have faith and trust in Jesus. Then finally, he kind of rounds it out with that last part that we read there. He says that favoritism in no uncertain terms is a sin. He pretty much comes right out and says it. If you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin and you are guilty of breaking the law. And the last thing that I want to kind of mention here is there's this feel in the passage 
like he's sitting there talking to the people and, you know, that if he was actually present with them, that, that when he's had these conversations, he's noticed that, that everybody there perks up when he talks about, you know, maybe a murder or when he talks about adultery and some of those bigger sins. But the moment you begin talking about something like favoritism, which is kind of a socially acceptable sin, people in the back go, oh yeah, well, I don't kill anybody. I'm doing pretty good. If I have a little bit of favoritism from time to time, it's fine. Now, we don't mentally think that way, but I think we, we sometimes feel that way. You know, I do so much good. I, I don't do all these terrible things, so, so what's it going to hurt if I just do a little bit of this other thing? And what James is saying is this. Listen, when you've broken one of the laws, you've essentially broken all of them because they're all the same in God's eyes. He doesn't see murderers different from adulterers, different from people who show favoritism. And so James is making a case for the fact that even though this isn't one of the big flashy sins, this is something you need to pay attention to. Why? Because favoritism was destroying the church. It was creating a divide. And it was breaking up relationships. Because you cannot have good relationships with people who you only pay attention to because of what they can do for you. Here's how it goes. And I know I use marriage a lot, but that's because I am married, and so that's my personal experience. When I first saw my wife, it was all about me, because she was a good-looking lady. And when I saw her, you know what happens when you're young, and you see the pretty little pretty thing, or the handsome guy, or whatever, and all of a sudden, you're physically attracted. You guys know that physical attraction does exist, right? How many of you remember that? Some of us are almost too old to remember it, but it happens, and I was physically attracted to her. And, and all I could think about was, wow, she's beautiful. I, I need her in my life, man. I, that is the most gorgeous woman I've ever seen. And, and I'm physically attracted. And it's kind of all about, you know, getting these feelings, you know, and, and being close to her. And everything was about being close. I just wanted to be with her all the time and just spend time with her and, and all this stuff, you know. And, and as the relationship grew on, I started to realize that not only did I need her and want her, but there was more to the relationship than just what she could do for me and make me feel better. Because, you know, I noticed that after a while, she didn't make me feel nearly as good as she used to. Because, you know, you kind of get used to it after a while, don't you? Some of you men are just sitting there stoic. You're like, I'm afraid to say anything. I just don't even want to move. <laughs> Women are being honest. Yes, yes. Yeah, he stopped being attractive years ago. It's fine, you know. It kind of wears off. You know what? That's where a lot of relationships break down. But you see, we've got to get to the place where we recognize that when I have a relationship with another person, it's not just about what they can do for me or how they make me feel. That I need to value them as an individual and value them as a creature God made. And when I do that and I give them the respect that they deserve, then we can have an honest and open relationship that benefits both of us. And you know what? In the church, it's kind of the same way. Some people come to churches because, man, everybody looks happy and it's all good and it's all great. And then they find out that the people in the church are actually real, honest, flawed people. And suddenly it all falls apart. And we go from church to church to church looking for that perfect group of people that will make me feel better. And I'm here to tell you that in the church, we're all flawed. And we all need to be willing to not show favoritism, not judge each other based on appearance, but to simply treat each other like Jesus treated people and to accept them no matter what. Because you know what? As we begin to do that with each other, then we learn how to better do that with God. Because the truth of the matter is, some people treat God the same way. I'm going to follow God as long as he's doing something for me. As long as he makes me feel good, I'll follow him. 
But you know what? God deserves to be judged on more than just the way he makes you feel because he's the creator. He gave you life and he sent his son Jesus so that you could be in relationship with him. Listen, the goal of our lives, as I said earlier, is is for us to grow continually and ever-presently deeper and closer in relationship to God. But we cannot do that if the sum total of our relationships are all about getting what we need from others. And friends, that's really where the root of favoritism begins. And so James has some coarse and very hard things to say to the church. Now, I would imagine the church read those first words and says, don't show favoritism. Got it. No problem. I'll never do that again. And then you know what they probably did? They probably went out and showed favoritism. Because this is so hard for us to detect in ourselves. It's easy for me to see when Chick does it. It's easy for me to see when somebody else does it. But it's not always easy for me to see when I do it. And so we need to be mindful of all the things that that we think about other people and the things that we say about other people to make sure that we're treating them with the same love and care and forgiveness and grace that Jesus showed to us by accepting us when we were unlovable. Pray with me and then we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, I thank you for um, the book of James once again and for all that it has to teach us, Lord. It, it is amazing to me how it seems to be speaking right into our society today and some of the issues that we're having. It, it would appear, Lord, that there is nothing new under the sun, that things just kind of repeat themselves and that we continue to struggle with some of the same things that we always have. Lord, I, I just recognize here today that There have been times in my life where certainly I showed favoritism, and there probably will be again. None of us are perfect. Even though the the instructions are clear and it would seem easy, none of us are perfect. But help us to see that that what you desire from us is not necessarily perfection, but but that perfect love that the older saints in our movement used to talk about, the the, the point where we get to that, that every desire that we have is to please you, and every desire that we have is to do what you call us to do, and that when we hear your Holy Spirit whispering in our ear and, and, and trying to reshape our lives, that we're willing to respond and obey because we desire more than anything else to walk close with you. We know that that doesn't mean we won't fail from time to time, but Lord, it's that perfect desire, that perfect love that we need to strive for. Help us to put away our our selfish thoughts and our selfish ambitions. Help us not to see people based on on what they can do for us or or how they can make us feel better or, or more comfortable, but help us to look at people as people that you desire to see in your kingdom so that we can do whatever it takes to help them to find the love and the grace that you offer through the cross of Calvary. Father, take us from this place today with new eyes that we would be able to see people as you see them. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.